Good evening. This is a very special occasion for the Walter H. Capp Center. Tonight we inaugurate a newly endowed lectureship in the name of Martin E. Marty. An anonymous family here in Santa Barbara has made a very generous gift to the Capp Center, which makes it possible for us to have an annual Martin E. Marty lecture on American religion here in the CAP Center. So I'm just really delighted and want to express my appreciation to uh, the donors for making this possible, this extraordinary gift, and you can look forward to other distinguished speakers uh, in the years ahead. The CAP Center exists as a venue of conversation, dialogue, discussion on important issues of our time. We're nonpartisan, we're nonsectarian. Uh, the only thing we really stand for, I suppose, is civil conversation. And that's a very important thing in our time, given that we all live in such a hyped reality as a result of all of our news channels. The CAP Center seeks to become one place where we can um, discuss openly and in a civil way, following the example of uh, Walter Capps, discuss the important topics of our time. Tonight, we're indeed privileged to have uh, the person for whom this endowed lectureship is named to be the inaugural speaker, and that is Martin E. Marty. Marty is the Fairfax M. Cohn Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the uh, University, of uh, University of Chicago. <laughs> Wish it were the University of California. He is widely regarded as the most prominent interpreter of American religious and spiritual trends in our day. He's the author of more than 50 books. And I think, and this is just a guess, because this man writes so prolifically, he's the author of about a thousand chapters, articles, commentaries that have been published. It's an incredible number. Take 100 or two either side of that figure. It's a big figure. He's written books that have received incredible awards. He's a columnist for the Christian Century. He writes a newsletter. He is also a contributor to Sightings, which is a website uh, editorial published by the Marty Center at the University of Chicago. A Lutheran pastor, ordained in 1952. He's been president of the American Academy of Religion, the American Society of Church History, and the American Catholic Historical Association. He has also served on two United States presidential commissions, and was director of both the Fundamentalism Project of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences 
and the Public Religion Project at the University of Chicago. He's a recipient of numerous honors, including the National Humanities Medal, the National Book Award, the Medal of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the University of Chicago Alumni Medal, the Distinguished Service Medal of the Association of Theological Schools, and the Order of Lincoln Medallion, Illinois' top honor. He's an elected member of the American Antiquarian Society and of the Society for American Historians, and an elected fellow of the American Philosophical Society and the American Academy of Political and Social Sciences. He has received more than 70 honorary degrees. Need I say any more? Please join me in welcoming Martin E. Marty. Dear friends, and thanks Director Wade Clark Roof, old friend, Santa Barbara represents old friendships to us, Walter Capps, a friendship that went back many, many years, and admiration that has outlived him, and Lois Capps, Honorable Lois Capps. When we're thinking Santa Barbara, we think of friends like John and Lillian Lovelace, our host tonight, and it could go on and on, including members of this faculty that I had as students. I won't tell on them. The topic is Mapping American Spiritualities, Revising the Map of American Religion was the title of an article I wrote for Daedalus of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, an issue that was published and edited by none other than Wade Clark Roof. So when I'm invited now to talk about a lectureship on religion and spirituality, I thought I've already talked about religion, so I'm done with that. Now I'll talk about spirituality. That's it for tonight. Everything changes with focus when that comes about. And I'm always conscious when you come together with an audience, you bring a world, I bring a world, and for 50 minutes our worlds meet. And the question always on my mind is why should you care about this subject, as I hope you will. To locate it, for example. Last week we certainly saw the power of a faith that represents one-fourth of America, Roman Catholic, in the Pope's funeral. We are regularly dealing with Islam, Judaism, Protestantism, evangelicalism in politics. We're very much at home with that landscape, but over the last 30 to 50 years, another force as strong almost as any of them has emerged, and we haven't quite the handles on it. And this lectureship, as well as numbers of you and I, are working on that topic. It affects these institutions, it affects the character of American life, uh, our global ties, and perhaps the personal life of many of you. Spirituality is a recently retrieved topic. It hasn't been around all the time. In 1966, in a summer convention that issued in an issue of Daedalus in winter of 67, we were brought together at the American Academy, 15 remember what year this was, 15 young men, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, 
following the model. These were the days right after the Vatican Council. There were talks on Time Magazine cover of the death of God. These were the years of the civil rights movement and welfare reform and the movement of civil rights. And all of us were very much involved with what religion would do in that public sphere. They invited three secular people in there with all of us religious people. Sociologist David Reisman, historian Harry Murray, and, uh, and the psychologist Harry Murray and historian Frank Manuel. And on Sunday afternoon they said, it was really interesting, we had all these 15 people there talking for three days and not one of them spent one second talking about what most people think religion's about. We didn't hear the word prayer, piety, devotion, spirituality. And so I was assigned the task of writing on the search for a spiritual style in secular America. Today you'd write shelves full of books on this topic, but it was pretty thin then. The most noted theologian of the day, Paul Tillich, had just finished the third volume of his systematic theology. It's called Life in the Spirit, which ought to have keyed talk about spirituality. Paul Tillich is somebody who told all of us, never throw a religious symbol away, it'll always come back. The Catholic Church, for example, had redefined itself as the servant church, or the pilgrim church, these ancient, ancient lines. But one word could never come back, said this greatest of our theologians, spirituality. It's too far gone, it's a debased coin, nobody talks about it, nobody thinks about it. I found a few signs, Pope John XXIII had written Diary of a Soul, Teilhard de Chardin was working on uh, evolutionary spirituality. Thomas Merton, the monk, was writing. Dorothy Day, in her column, was doing this. But it didn't show up. If you want proof, go to the library and look at a book you haven't looked at since you had to write high school term papers, The Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature, and look for the word spirituality up till 1960s. Just about gone unless it had adjectives, and I'll come back to them. So, change came in the 1970s, shortly after this. And I've listed a few of the occasions for these changes. First, a sense of limit to a lot of religious expressions of the day. I've just illustrated that. We talked about everything except what most people always thought religion had been about. Secondly, we were entering a new world. Change in immigration laws were bringing fresh people from Africa and Asia. We have new constituencies, they brought their own religions and their spiritualities. And we were seeing a great accent on non-institutional and individualistic expressions. This led, third, to a critique of religion. Much of the spirituality movement that was started then has been anti-religion. I can never talk on this subject without recalling the mantra you hear all the time. I am not a member of the organized church. I, I, do not like institutional religion. I'm not even religious, but I'm very spiritual. And I always picture a kind of an aerosol spray can by that stage, <laughs> instead of something to stumble over. But there's a lot to criticize. The institutionalization, the self-centeredness, the scandal, often the boredom, the exhaustion. There are a lot of things of this sort. And uh, another thing that happened, there was a void in the market. Supply-siders would say. The Catholic publishers had stopped having a spirituality section. They had sold these only to priests and nuns, and the number of them was declining, and a different market was there. And all of a sudden, secular publishers came in and started doing this, and 
Everybody whipped back in action. Paulist Press, for example, with my colleague Bernard McGinn editing, has 150 volumes now on spirituality, Native American spirituality. The very famous mystics and so on are all there. So there's a market orientation to it. Cultural change. Tremendous cultural change. Things that had been anchored were no longer anchored. And I think the decline of the mid-century ideologies, communism on an international scale hadn't fallen until late 1980s, but uh, it was exhausted. Secularism had uh, been there. And a new assessment of what the human being is, the human drama, the human ethos. So let me point to a few of the evidences of the changes that came along the way. For one, a recovery of classic Western, Christian, Jewish, Eastern Orthodox spiritualities. Illustration, somewhere in the 1970s, I have a friend, actually a seminary roommate, who's a pastor of a large church in the Chicago suburbs. And in the 60s, every kind of group would meet there. Their ethos was, Jesus says, if you have a roof, you have to share it. So they'd share it. But then the press releases that came out would always be how to end the capitalist system and how to bring down everything else. So the uh, trustees of the church said, at least you have to ask everybody what they want to use the church for. It can help a little bit. And he said, one day two guys came out, long-haired, almost late in the game to be that way, irrelevant-looking, uh, beaded and all. And I said to them, uh, when they asked him to use the church for this afternoon, what do you want to use? Well, we're going to thumb out to Berkeley later today, and uh, we, we'd like to meditate three hours first. And he said, the first thought came to my mind was, you bunch of nuts, who ever heard of using a church for meditation? <laughs> There's a brass plaque on the door that says, open for meditation and prayer all hours, but nobody ever used it for that. <laughs> well, uh, the West was waking. I have a lot of interest, for example, in the uh, relation of religion to healing and health. And soon, people were noticing that Judaism, Christianity, were born as healing cults, religions. The words for saving and healing have the same roots in Hebrew and in Greek. And that had long been forgotten, and now these kinds of people who were bringing meditation back to us are bringing all that back. So you're finding a recovery of those resources. You experiment with spiritualities not associated with the West, Hindu, Buddhist, etc., the stage when the new religious movements were formed. Not all of them were highly spiritual. Some of them were quite almost militaristic in their disciplines, but not all of them were hardlined. And then highly individualistic devising. And I think the turning point came in the 1970s. Go back to that Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature. Look it up. I was floundering around in 67 looking for it and not finding much. In the 1970s, there was an article in Free Inquiry, a humanist magazine, that said, spirituality is far too nice a word to let the religious people hold it captive. <laughs> and then a kind of a pop cultural following, and you'll see that in no time at all, the old Cosmo, the kind you could still bring home, um, the um, Red Book, all these magazines were having articles on spirituality, sometimes related to historic religions, but very often of a different pattern. And it became a kind of a challenge to religion, which came to be negatively described. A lot of people, I think, would think that this lectureship ought to be called American Religion versus Spirituality instead of American Religion and Spirituality. I'd like to ask provocative questions about where to locate this now. 
those of us in religious studies, and Santa Barbara has a great program in that at the university here, are often asked to define religion. You might notice that 50 minutes will have gone by tonight and I won't really have defined spirituality either. But when you're asked to define religion, there's one book I have that has 110 page footnotes on definitions of religion that don't define it. Uh, so my, my usual answer to define religion is to remind people that I was one of eight editors of a book called Encyclopedia of Religion. 16 volumes, 2 million words, and I define religion as the, if your book is called Encyclopedia of Religion, it's the kind of stuff you write about if that's your book title. <laughs> so soon there will be encyclopedias of spirituality. And the interesting question is, is spirituality a topic that fits into an encyclopedia of religion, or is religion a topic that fits into an encyclopedia of spirituality? Or are they independent, non-overlapping realities, though they talk about a lot of the same things? So I think we're at a moment where there's a need for fresh descriptions, syntheses, which are being worked out by scholars, by entrepreneurs, by people of all sorts these days. And my little interest tonight is what I call mapping. I had mapped religion in that article for Wade Roof, and uh, do a little bit of mapping now of spirituality. And I have a souvenir program for you to take home in case you want to check the map. It's, it's really kind of a satellite view. Uh, I keep thinking behind each thing I'm saying tonight is a whole bibliography, and we're having to hurry over. So this is a view from 30,000 miles up like satellites are. It's a safe distance, by the way. And it's not easy to do because you... Uh, how do you map a vapor? And there's a lot of um, ill-definedness in both religion and spirituality. My method will be, in a sense, phenomenological. Edmund Husserl, one of the founders of that field, gave a vivid metaphor for that method. Picture an explorer coming upon an, a scene that either hasn't been mapped or he or she doesn't know whether it's been. An island. If there's a mountain, they'll know it's there. But otherwise, you don't know whether they're... Uh, cities, alligators, swamps. So you are extremely attentive. That's almost the key word. You really pay close attention. You are naively sophisticated or sophisticatedly naive because we've all been living in this environment. Now we're trying to step back as if we hadn't seen it before. I once assisted a minister who said, Marty, write down everything you see the first six weeks because you'll never see anything after that. And we've seen so much of this so long that it's hard to imagine our way back. We're going to try to do it. And the mode is following one that we used in that six-year fundamentalism project from Spinoza's Tractatus Theologico Politicus. When I have set out to try to understand human action, I have made a sedulous effort, sedulo coravi, not to laugh, not to cry, not to denounce, but to understand. There are many things in spirituality, like religion, that one laughs at. There are things one cries over. There are things to denounce. But if you want to understand it, you step back from that and are trying to be attentive to what's there. So I have five sort of dualities here. They're not boxes to put things in so much as dimensions. They're not cages so much as open fields. And I'll try to explain them. This is our map now. Number one, moored and unmoored spirituality on my map. We all get our choice of metaphors, and my choice is uh, aquatic. I picture all human life, all of us are, at least much of the time, at sea, in storm, in fog. 
There are two different ways in which you could be involved with this. There are other metaphors possible. The great sociologist of religion at Princeton, Robert Wuthnow, has used the image of spiritualities that are housed, domestic, in sanctuaries, versus those that represent journey. And much spirituality is the language of journey and pilgrimage, not a sense of arrival. But I'm using uh, the aquatic one. And for me, moored spirituality tends to be identified with the long traditions, pretty close to religious. I call this spirituality with adjectives. And if you ever saw spirituality up until the 1970s, it would be associated with, e.g., feminist spirituality, Native American spirituality, medieval spirituality, Islamic spirituality. You have an adjective there which suggests a mooring. When you're at sea, you know at least there is a port, whether you find it or not. You know you're at least aiming for it. You know you belong back there in the middle of it all. And the mooring represents things such as texts, Torah, Quran, medieval mysticism, Buddhist texts. It represents traditions. This is how we've done it. We get the word tradition from what is handed down. And the mooring ones know that somebody built the docks and set it up. Communities are very big in the moored forms of spirituality. You didn't invent it, you inherited it, and you are responsible to people, and they're responsible to you. And then customs go with it. This isn't done in this tradition. Or have you tried that? This is how we've always done it. They provide content. They might nudge you. They might judge you. Critics call these religious or belonging to religions. And the moored version is vulnerable because the Peers can rot, and the light can go out in the lighthouse, and all that can happen. But there is at least a mooring. The unmoored version, using the word un makes it sound negative, and I'm not trying to sound negative here. It's not a void. It's a way of saying perhaps it represents you're free for adventure on the high seas. It's more scary. The main emergent form of spirituality in our time, I think, takes this character. It may be postmodern in the positive and negative sense of that concept. We always have to define postmodern too. And by now, I hope you know me well enough to know I prefer metaphor and image to uh, abstract definition. I was chatting with Catherine Albanese of Religious Studies here, who uh, had me as an advisor on religion, and Charles Long, African American, as kind of an advisor on spirituality. These were the early years of postmodernity, and he gave me a definition in the visual art line. If it's a French word and ends in A-G-E, you're pretty close to postmodern. <laughs> Bricolage, decoupage, assemblage, montage, collage, and her other professor threw in garbage. <laughs> It, in other words, it's eclectic. You take these various things that don't seem to form a harmony, and yet it can be very attractive. A collage can be a very beautiful thing. In the architecture school, you can, I can show you a wing of our art institute that has pediments from the Roman, it has arches, it has Gothic, and the total thing makes an environment that one likes. It's um, more technically in religious terms, it's syncretistic. It takes elements of the various religions and spiritualities, and it borrows and puts them together sometimes from scratch. Now, this has led to a tremendous burst of imagination. 
If you're sailing along without awareness of a harbor back there, you don't know whether they're lighted buoys or lighthouses. <clears throat> Very daring. Imaginative, creative, good things have happened. And this had been the margin 30 years ago, and it's joined the mainstream alongside what I've mentioned before. Catholicism, Islam, Judaism, Protestant, and Mormonism, and so on. And by the way, you don't necessarily leave those communities when you're involved with the new spirituality. Uh, you can be kind of a plural belonger, as I'll point out soon. But as you watch the various versions of spirituality, you'll often find that some of them make a great deal of reference to text and tradition and custom, and others, you're kind of individual on your own. The second one, <clears throat> my pairing, is, uh, I'm not real proud of these two words, but <clears throat> there they are, solipsistic and astral. <laughs> solipsistic. Again, has a negative kind of ring very often. A theory holding that the self can know nothing but its own modifications. Doesn't have to mean egocentrism, but it does mean that it proceeds out of the ego. The intention is to do justice to spiritual expressions that have an anthropological grounding in the self-existent self. I'm studying this a good deal these days because I'm writing a book right now called The Mystery of the Child, a celebration of wonder. I'm directing a project at Emory in which 19 professors are talking about the problems of the child, or the problem of the child, or the problem child, and there are plenty of them, but nobody was spending time on what is a child. And so I'm spending time on the mystery of the child. Marcel says problems have solutions, mysteries have depths, and the spirituality of the child is really astonishing on this level. They don't have long historical memory. But you follow them around and you see that with the, what should be an apparently small palette with which to work, they're painting big things. And I've been studying in, in England, there are more studies because spirituality is now a curricular subject in England. <clears throat> and I get various attempts at definition of this sort. Spirituality, says one Anthony Wright, is the developing relationship of the individual within community and tradition to that which is or is perceived to be of ultimate concern ultimate value, and ultimate truth. Two other scholars talk about it as awareness sensing, mystery sensing, value sensing. Their national curricular committee calls it the search for meaning and purpose in life and values by which to live. Being aware of one's awareness, characterized by a sharply focused attention to the here and now of expression. And uh, one last one, um, Tony Udi says, spiritual experience and episodes are those which enable the individual, individual, through aspects of experience beyond direct sensory experience, to explore and understand his or her purpose, location in relation to space and time, and identity, and they're in relation to people and environment. So it can be social. But essentially, this form of spirituality begins by asking, what is a child? What is the human being? Why are we programmed to be searching for purpose and meaning and value? Sometimes this will move beyond the anthropological to talk in theistic language, but it usually talks of the self as God or God within the self. <clears throat> it seeks the enhancement of the positive soul of the individual. Sometimes it speaks as if the soul and the spirit are the chief or the only reality. 
The other end of that one, these are not utterly separated, I'm calling astral because I have a dimensional reference from oneself to the largest possible conceivable universe. It's a metaphysical assumption, go behind physics, beyond physics, a cosmic base and reach. Astral is, quote, of or consisting of a supersensible substance held to be next above the tangible world in refinement. We, in this form of spirituality, are connected to everything from the possible strings in string theory. I don't know how, how much you're keeping up if you've seen any strings lately, but I'm kind of interested in them because they hypothesize that a string of the strings theory is one billionth of a billionth of an atom. So we're getting kind of small here, you don't see them very well. And connected to the largest, there are now known to be enough galaxies that every one of you and every human life can own nine galaxies. We're never going to get to the nearest star in our own little chummy Milky Way. And all these are connected and there's a strong spiritual search to see this. And the more you'll read this, the more you'll read about how these are connected through energies. I uh, picked up the other week, uh, I think there was a time when people in 49 states thought all this happened in California. <laughs> Oregon, maybe up as far as Washington. So just to show you that it's a national move, I uh, picked this up in Indianapolis, branches, and the volume 18, so it's not new, is on energy. And you can go to Fort Wayne, Indiana for the uh, New Age Expo and Psychic Fair. Intuitive artists, psychics, jewelry, holistic healers. You can go to uh, Camp Chesterfield Psyche Fairs in uh, Chesterfield, Indiana. Page after page, Mind, Body, Soul, Chesterfield Spiritualist Academy. I gotta go to Spirit <laughs> Chesterfield someday to, to do this all. But if there's one word that runs through it all, it is always, or two words, connection and energy from the strings of string theory through you to the largest cosmos. And it's pretty hard to think about that without having thoughts that have been associated with the concept of the spiritual. These aren't opposites, therefore. They may be connected, but they're by duality. <clears throat> the third one. Again, uh, the names are never thoroughly appropriate. I mean, have in mind those big bibliographies lurking out there. But I call it Gnostic and practical spirituality. Gnostic spirituality is essentially intellectual and aesthetic. Goes back to ancient Gnostic movements, two millennia old, an early rival to early Christianity. It focuses on the intrinsic worth of spiritual grasps and expressions. When you say intrinsic, that ought to be enough right there. It's its own justification. What's the use of the spirituality? And some will say, um, what's the use of a Scarlatti Sonata? What's the use of the lilies in a Monet painting? If it has an intellectual and an aesthetic feature and you're honoring the human and the human's universe, that ought to be it. Now, again, all of these judge each other. We moored, judge, unmoored, and vice versa. And uh, I once talked on this to a group of... Uh, hospital visitors and hospice people. And somebody said, you sound a bit negative about some of this spirituality. Uh, what's your problem? <laughs> I said, well, spirituality doesn't make hospice calls. 
There's now a bumper sticker out there. I finally made it. Spiritually, they make hospice calls. Isn't as preoccupied with works of justice. Well, not everything has to be. There's an orchestra going on here tonight, and I don't think Kirov has to worry about whether they're bringing justice in the world if they're bringing good music, and you're there. And that's the feature. So this is the talk of beauty, of intellectuality, of vibrations, and so on. And later on, we'll talk about the ways in which elites get formed out of this. Some of them tend to be disembodied, downplaying the physical and the communal. I'm a Christian, and I often run into Christian Gnostics who think uh, we'd be better off if we were very spiritual. In this sense of downplaying the physical, the material, the communal. And I quote to them the great Archbishop William Temple, who once said, sorry, if you're a Christian, you can't get out of it. It's the most material of all religions. You can't even get it started without a loaf of bread, a bottle of wine, and a river. <laughs> so, so the Gnostics weren't working on that particular theme, but I hope you could tell I don't have a simple case against it. The beauty, the vibrations. And it's posed often with an alternative, which I'm not alone in calling practical. Practical often comes close to what is seen as the religious and the institutional and the communal. It does make hospice calls. It makes different use of often the same resources in which the Gnostic model uses, but it moves on beyond there into the realm of practice. I think that the spiritual movement of the last 30 years has thrown a new light on activism in the religions. A lot of the activism of the 1960s was very short-lived. Some people said it was generals without armies, it was letterheads, it was bureaus, and so on. What lasted were those who had what I'm calling practical spirituality. There's a terrible misquote in what I gave you, so scratch it out if you take it home and it's light enough to see. I quote Charles Peggy, a great Catholic socialist journalist of a century ago, who said, everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. That might be the life of Walter Capps. That is, he is a student of religion, of the spiritual, of the mystical. Piggy didn't mean by mystical, formal mysticism. And then you ask, what does this mean carried out into the world? I often ask, if not collegians, because their memory is quite short and these are ancient characters to them, but people in the middle of life and beyond, uh, who are the people from the last century that you wouldn't mind projecting a few centuries ahead and saying it wasn't the worst century in which to live? And they tend to be, I put some names here, Gandhi, uh, Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King, Mandela, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Pope John Twenty-Third. I've mentioned Thomas Burton, Doug Hammarskjöld. You go down the list of all these. Those who lasted had a spiritual depth that they kept having replenished. I don't think you can explain Martin Luther King without knowing Howard Thurman, who was a black mystic who had tremendous influence on him and King is incomprehensible about from the fact that he is uh, drawing on these traditions of what it is to be African American Baptist everything began in mysticism and ended in politics this version has many functions in a larger society that other forms of spirituality don't and I'll just give a couple of illustrations Every study you'll find, including in today's 
USA Today, which is the standard airport reading for my wife and me today. Big page article on the latest studies from Harold Koenig at Duke and elsewhere on how people in the spiritual and religious line tend to live longer. It's extremely controversial, and there are many kinds of things you have to study. But in general, they have an outlook on life, and it seems to be projected. One of the, one of the people in our project, uh, Ronald Numbers, was brought up in Seventh-day Adventism, and he kind of slid away from that, and in our project would do things that uh, you Adventists don't do. He'd have coffee, he'd have wine, and somebody said, well, you know, Latter-day Saints and Seventh-day Adventists, demographically, live about three or four years longer than other people. Looking back on the restraint of those years, he said, sometimes it only seemed longer. <laughs> but, but it's there. It works. It's true. Um, well, with that in mind, more and more medical schools are saying nurses, physicians, medical workers have to understand this dimension of human life better. They're not priests, they're not chaplains, they're not proselytizers. It would be a terrible risk if they started that, but they have to learn this somehow. And there are 80 med schools now that have courses on spirituality and how you deal with it. Now, you couldn't get a course on religion in one of them because religion would immediately be seen as competitive institutions. Am I giving enough time to this one? Am I, have I just insulted Adventists and Mormons? I didn't intend to. Um, but spirituality, you can do it on this kind of thing. So it's in the med medical schools, in clinics, where religion can be an awkward and complicating reality. Spirituality provides an apparent neutral access. There are whole shelves full of books now written about spirituality in the workplace. More executive firms um, and so on uh, will have sessions, they'll have retreats, they'll do spirituality in the workplace. Again, introduce religion in the workplace and immediately gets typed as somebody has a vested interest. But practical. It takes the mystical, the devotional, all these other things, out into the workplace, into the clinic, into the public sector. <clears throat> the fourth of the five dualities are humanistic and theistic spiritualities. Humanistic goes back to that article written in the 1970s where somebody said, isn't spirituality too good a word to let the religious people have a monopoly on it. There's a grand tradition of the accent on the spiritual in the humanistic tradition. Make yourself a list of Nobel Prize winners in peace and in literature, and you'll find quite a number of people that you can't associate with a particular religious tradition. And some of them had to rather steadfastly step back from it. A very famous speech made by Albert Camus, Nobel Prize winner to Dominicans in France. They shared opposition to the uh, Nazis and to their own regime that succumbed to it. They, Catholics found him exemplifying courage, bravery, humility that hadn't been seen before, teamwork. And so they said, can we think of you as a, a fellow Catholic? And he then said, uh, no, um, that would be baptizing me by terminology. That's my word for what he was saying. Um, if I could believe in the God who lets this war happen and lets innocent babies die of brain tumors, I would. I really would. I admire you. I like it. You can believe that and you act on it. 
but we will do much better if we respect each other across that boundary without you trying to force me into that mold, just as I'm not trying to get you to stop being Dominican Catholics. And I think that's a tradition that we spot a good deal more. They're humanistic. I've already alluded to that when I was talking about children before. Just a search for meaning in life on its own. Houston Smith, one of the great students of spirituality and religion, wrote a book once called Condemned to Meaning, in which he quotes a French thinker, Merleau-Ponty, because we are present to a world, we are condemned to meaning. No human gets by without that. Talget Parsons, a notable sociologist of 30 or 40 years ago, well known for writing almost incomprehensibly turgid sociologies, pardon me, had one clear sentence in one of his books, <laughs> and a profound one, in which he said, the human, in culture, cannot sustain living in a world that is entirely chaotic and random. He or she is going to find some fabric of meaning to help endow their joys and their sorrows, their successes and failures with meaning. That's what Houston Smith means. And you don't need God for that, and you don't need to be a Hindu for that. You don't have to be in one of the traditions. It can take its root on philosophical terms, aesthetic terms, or whatever. The development of soul and spirit in the human drama. A colleague at Chicago, Leon Cass, is uh, head of the Presidential Commission on, on Cloning. He's one of these kinds of thinkers we all say, I often disagree with him, but I always respect him and I really enjoy visiting with him. And I've talked a lot with him about what this means. And uh, in one of his writings on the ascent of soul, he's an Orthodox Jew and an Aristotelian. That's kind of a University of Chicago mix that you see a lot of. And um, he defines soul. He says, the soul is not a ghost in the machine. It's not a pilot on a ship. It's not a thing at all. And the med school prof will take a student into the morgue the first day. There, here they are, 4.0 at a good school, and there they are the first day the morgue, and you have to hold a hand. What could that hand do yesterday? It could caress, it could write, it could hold a baby. All the molecules are there, what's missing? Soul. And then, a little harder for the 21-year-olds, they pull back the sheet and they have to s the genitals. And everyone has to make some story about this. And that is pretty rough on a 21-year-old to say that flow of life and desire is ended. All the molecules are there, the physical structure, what's missing? Soul. And so he kind of roughly defines soul as the vital, dynamic power of any organic body as long as it's open to possibility and future and hope. Inorganic, it's gone. Non-vital, it's gone. Not dynamic, it's gone. Closed off possibility, it's gone. But as long as they're there, that being will be involved and so you can have humanistic spirituality. The vast majority of spiritualities are theistic in the broadest sense of the term. You can even say that the solipsistic one who says, uh, I'm God, God's in me, I'm all the God there is, is being theistic, a little close to home, but it's theistic. But the major religions, which represent the vast majority of people in the human race, somehow 
make reference to uh, Theos or God. Of those I list here, Hindu, Islamic, Buddhist, or Christian, is Buddhist would be the one that doesn't uh, need Theos as such. I've been involved in numbers of gatherings, like before the Cairo Conference on Population Development and Women's Reproductive Rights, where we were trying to get a common statement of the religions, <laughs> foreseeing opposition from the Muslim fundamentalists and the Vatican. We didn't win. Seven of the nine days were taken up <laughs> by the other side. But uh, we worked so hard. There was a Polish priest representing Roman Catholicism who would always say, well, at least couldn't we say, having said we all the religions believe in human dignity, all of them believe, we had a little list of these, couldn't we all say we at least have a common belief in God? Michio Araki from Japan <laughs> said, no, I'm as religious as all of you, but uh, we don't do it with God, we do it with holy emptiness. Well, couldn't we then use the sacred? That's how you Westerners smuggle God back in. Capital S, sacred. We believe there are sacred shrines, there are sacred people, there are sacred events, but we don't consolidate it that way. Now, was he less spiritual than the others? But vast majority of them, there is theos that is somehow, uh, in Martin Buber's terms, God is not expressed but addressed. Thou, I and thou, speaks. That somehow, by whatever name, Theos impinges on the human world and demands or welcomes response. That's about 90% of the American people and even higher in many nations of the world. Finally, exoteric and esoteric. I'm going to slightly switch terms on somebody else's patent here, Fitzjof Schoen. Exoteric spirituality has a public dimension. Before, when I said practical spirituality, it's from a dictionary, suitable to be imparted to the public. It belongs to the outer or less initiated circle. Paradoxically, it usually starts among people who do have a text, a tradition, who say this is the truth, and it emanates from there into what I call a y'all-come venture. We're not exclusive and different. Yes, we have definitional boundaries, but we'd like you to be part of it, and so on. It's often friendlier to religion, and it's also the place where a lot of the free riders or the plural belongers are. You are a Presbyterian, and you're into astral projections. You're a Methodist, and you're into rolfing. You're, you, know, you can do all this plural belonging. And they don't worry that much about it. Any poll I've ever seen of any religious body finds that... Uh, there are enforcers of orthodoxy, but the closer you get to people demographically and ethnographically and hear what they're really thinking, they're all, we're all heretics. Um, the esoteric versions you'd think would be the opposite because they don't think they have it solved. They believe that there is simply one general universal principle of meaning and they have a handle on it. But because that search involves a discipline, almost always these esoteric versions demand elites, initiates. They're led by teachers. If they don't have congregations, they have clientels, they have constituencies. And thus, paradoxically, are more exclusive even though they have a philosophy of inclusion. What do we make of this map, finally? Please don't think, they are, note that they are what Max Weber calls ideal types. That is, you'll never meet one exactly like any of these. Uh, most of us are walking around with numbers of these emphases, all of the above, or whatever. 
uh, no exact fits for the phenomena. These are kind of descriptions of zones. I'm interested in zones, by the way. We drive into town, you see a sign, quiet, hospital zone. There's never a sign again that says you don't have to be quiet any longer. <laughs> right? You don't know quite where it starts, but you do know that you're in a zone governed by a hospital. And I think that's how these things are. You can kind of tell when you're on a soil that nurtures one or another of these. You won't find these in the yellow pages of the phone book. In the essay I wrote for Wade Clark Roof uh, a few years ago on mapping, I mentioned that where we start in religion, you start with the yellow pages. There's a section alphabetically between chiropractors, chlorinators, and cigars called churches. <laughs> and, and, uh, and there they are in straight alphabetical order. Uh, my colleague David Tracy says, the only time I ever sound like a postmodernist is when I say, just look at the letter U in your yellow pages, where you have Unity, Unification Church, uh, United Methodist Church, Unitarian Church, Irreversalist Church, United Church of Christ, they have nothing in common but the letter U. <laughs> Not exactly. But uh, you don't find these in the phone book. You'll find them under the uh, various therapies and so on. But uh, most of them are not denominational in that standard set. There's a lot of overlappage, as I've already mentioned. The line between religion and spirituality, I think, never was as sharp as the polemicists in each category often suggest. One wag, I should identify this wag, she is the Dean of Students at the Divinity School, and Winifred Sullivan, who keeps us all hopping all the time. She wrote a 200-page book on why the Supreme Court acts as if it knows what, what religion defines. So I'll call her a wag. This is being taped, so if you're going to send it to Chicago, I'll make peace. She defines spirituality this way. She said, first you take religion. Everything is religion. Then you take everything out of it that you don't like, and what's left is spirituality. Well, from the other side, you could take, and here's a typographical area, you take spirituality. And then you notice how given a bit of time, foresight, and luck, certain texts will become standard. Traditions get passed on. Communities get formed. You have institutional concerns, and pretty soon you have religion. Most of the religions were born in what today's terms would have been called spiritual movements. Emil Durkheim, a great student of religion, described birth of religion as an effervescence. It's a bubbling up. We can't quite, by the time you cap it in the second generation, it's become religion. Now, both the renewal of religions in the United States and globally, everything I'm talking about tonight is becoming more global, and the retrieval of spiritualities tended to be surprises. In the year, there was a book called In the Year 2000. In the late 60s, there was a commission on the year 2000. Maybe hard for anybody to remember that we used to look forward to 2000. I was on a subcommittee on values, <laughs> and we were the first to disband because we had the faintest idea what values were in 67. How could we project them? <clears throat> but they were projecting the world of 1967. You could look it up. The basic, long term, multifold trend. And then they listed it. I can't resist saying this because this is both it gives me credentials because I wasn't at the Pope's funeral, and uh, I have to certify nearness, uh, and because it'll stick in your mind better if I do this, to say that I made a talk. It was at the Vatican. Um, the Pope John the Twenty-Third always talked about the Catholic Church as the full truth, and then generously the Orthodox and the Protestants were 
brothers, sisters in Christ, separated brothers. And then spiritually we're all Semites. And the Quran has Maryam and Moses in and the prophets, so we're part of it. And even Buddhism and Hinduism has some light. And then beyond them, there are the people who do not know God, but who serve God by their character quality. So his poor successor was asked, who are they? And he started a commission called Non Credendi, non-believers. And of course, uh, that's the one where communists, Jews, Protestants were consultants, and I was one of them. And uh, the proceedings are all published, and I looked it up to be sure I had it right, in 1978. By the way, somebody also asked me whether I had ever met this pope, because I think more people met the pope than there were Catholics in the world, if you just listen to the things. So I have to tell you about my moment. It happened at that event. Six of us, Peter Berger, Robert Bella, we're going to give speeches. And we have great big cardinal's chair, golden cardinal's chairs. Giovanni Agnelli is in the farthest chair. There we are. And right behind me, on a rickety little folding chair, was Cardinal Carl Wojtyla, future pope, peeking around my chair. And so I have, I didn't remember him, but I got to know a lot of what he did later. And they're translators, Russian, German, Italian, French, English. And I charged in this sentence saying the projection of these people in the world only 11 years earlier was already falling apart with all the burst of religion and spirituality in the world. The basic long-term moral forward trend was to be an increasingly sensate, empirical, this-worldly, secular, humanistic, pragmatic, utilitarian, contractual, epicurean, and hedonistic culture. <laughs> and, and they, well, they all came sputtering out. You know, you, Mr. Marty, you buy the wine tonight. Except the German, who said, I just need all your ichs to ish, empirisch, pragmatisch, etc. Which is my way of trying to stamp near at the conclusion how uh, there's always surprise ahead. Nobody foresaw the vitality of religions. 1950, every seventh person in the world was Muslim. Today, every fifth person in the world is Muslim. Vitalities of Christianity in the southern world, particularly. Buddhism and Hinduism in renewal. And then these separate kinds of spirituality that I've diagnosed tonight. And all that can go along the way. Well, a final word then from our sponsors. I, uh, as an historian, I often get invited to talk at the 100th anniversary of something. And this is the first time I could ever remember being invited at the 0th anniversary of something. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to watch. I hope to linger enough to see that nice line of future cap center lectures on religion and spirituality, and I guarantee you, whoever they choose, there will be surprises. Thank you.